Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, podcast producer and host Julia Furlan and co-host of The Indicator from NPR's Planet Money team, Stacey Vanek-Smith. All right, let's start the show. It is so nice to hear your aunt say my name. She sent me a text this morning out of the blue. And she was like, I heard that Megyn Kelly is leaving her job. She makes over $60 million a year. You should try to work in TV and get even just a little bit of that. That would be great for you. She's not wrong. She's but then not she was wrong. like, my cut would only be $5 million. I mean, if you could just negotiate like one sixtieth, <laughs> Right? That's all I need. Hey, y'all from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute here this week with two great guests, Julia Furlan, podcast maker and journalist. She's dancing here in the studio right now. And Stacey Vanek-Smith, host of NPR's The Indicator podcast. We're also joined in studio by one of my favorites, Miss Britney Spears. (laughs) This is her first big single, Hit Me Baby One More Time. Did you both know... That it turned 20 this week. I did. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> really? It turned 20 this week. Yeah, and we all turned 100. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. So the song turned 20 this week, and I'm playing it to mark the anniversary, but I'm also playing it because there was a wonderful oral history of this song and music video in Entertainment Weekly this week. Oh. Jessica Goldstein interviewed everyone involved with this song and where it came from. And it turns out there are a lot of fun facts about this song that you don't know. It's because, okay, because it feels problematic in certain ways. It's like not like a Me Too kosher song, right? Well, it feels like, yeah. hit me baby one more time. I don't know. Can I tell you the secret of that I have that feelings lyric? about it, yes. So the lyric, hit me baby one more time, was written by the songwriter of the song, Max Martin. He is Swedish, and his English wasn't that good when he was writing songs like this. So he meant to say... Hit me back on the phone. <laughs> Call oh, me back. Allegedly. But he got it wrong. So all of the Americans involved in the song said, you know, you should actually rephrase it. And he was like, no, I wrote the song. That's what it is. <laughs> so as a compromise, the official title of this song only says, baby, baby one, one more time. time. Wow. So it was supposed to be yeah. call me baby one more time? Basically. Oh, God. That's, that's, but that that's not true. Call yes. me one more time. Yes. I don't know what's happening in Sweden, <laughs> but like, call me one more time. Yes. No one thinks that. Yes. I have a fun fact about this video yeah. that I learned uh-huh. is that her cousin plays the love interest Ooh. in the video. Oh. <laughs> Last fun fact. Before Britney got this song, it was turned down by Deborah Cox and TLC. <gasps> They could pull. I actually think they would do a good version of it. They could do anything. Internet, make that happen for us, please. Yes. Make it happen. There's got to be a filter somewhere. I want it. Anyway, Brittany, I'm glad you're still here. I love (laughs) you so much. I really am rooting for her. Yeah. (sighs) On that note. I know. Let's talk about the news. <laughs> no. Please don't make it. Or we could just, just keep talking about Britney. We could just keep talking about Britney. We could talk about Britney. Yeah. Um, all right. We are going to start the show as we always do. I'm going to have each of my guests describe their week of news in only three words. Julia, you're up first. Okay. My three words are won't be erased. Okay, I think I know what you're talking about. Yes, Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the memo that the New York Times obtained last weekend on October 21st Mm -hmm. that would have defined trans people and intersex people out of existence. The memo made wide gestures at defining sex 
as whatever you are defined at as birth and with no it. change. Yeah. Well, and um, then the craziest part about this memo, this leaked Trump administration memo, uh, so it proposes to make your sex determined only by what is on your birth certificate. But if you want to challenge that, they want to DNA genetic, test you. Genetic, genetic testing. testing. You know what I find so strange with this, though? No one has said they're actually putting policy in place. Was this just a gesture for his base mm. was this just to get a cycle of headlines and like the last time he tried to have action on trans rights you know he instituted this ban on transgender people in the military mm-hmm. it's still caught up in court right i mean a lot of these things are extremely litigious like the the memo was from the department of health and human services but like the amount of um, actual legal work or or like infrastructure that would have to be put in place to You'd have to make a new office it. to yeah. do DNA testing for gender. Yeah. Are they prepared to actually implement the thing? Right. There's a lot of talk and it's like to get from a place where this is actually going to be enacted is is far is still far away. Still far away. Do we know any more at the end of a week of these headlines if the White House is actually close to doing this? They really haven't said a word they since the memo was leaked. They haven't said anything. No, the memo came out. And we don't know even who leaked it in the administration. Exactly. It was. I, I feel like you never know how these stories happen and what, what is behind it. But the one thing that I say is a bright spot is a lot of um, activism and support and, and people standing together um, to, to say trans folk exist. Yeah. They are here. They're, yeah. they're not going away. You can't define them out of existence. Well, and it's like a lot of people on the left and right this week are talking about what it means to be trans. Exactly. And that might be a silver lining, you know? A step. I must confess <laughs> that I have three words. Okay. I can't believe it's just call me. Yes, literally call <laughs> me. This is our running motif for the whole episode. Just call me. Just call me. Uh, so my three words are, and they end with a question mark, are we lying? Oh. And I asked this this week of the media because I have seen, particularly this week, this phenomenon where Trump says a thing that we all know is not true, but the media in its effort to debunk the mistruth repeats the mistruth. Yeah. I'm talking about, the, the, for me, the biggest thing right now is Trump's claim this week that this uh, caravan of migrants coming up to our southern border uh, contains unknown Middle Easterners. Yeah, Middle Eastern he, terrorists. He, he made a gesture at that there were Muslim ISIS members or something yeah. like that. Sure. And so, In the caravan. Yeah, yeah. There was no evidence this was the case. And later on, even Trump himself had to admit there was no evidence that that was the case. But all that I heard all week was every newsroom across the country, including ours, use the words Middle Easterners and terrorists right next to the word caravan. Mm. And so we're planting the message that he wants to be planted, even as we say that we are doing our work by saying it's not true. It swings us all to his... And it's this messaging that just implants in your head. Mm -hmm. Because now you're thinking about these words together. You know, this happened again this week when uh, Trump tweeted that Democrats want to get rid of health protections for people with pre-existing conditions and that his party, the GOP, uh, is on the opposite side of the issue. That's well, actually the, the entire, reverse. It's the reverse. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, like yeah. we have seen the Trump administration back a GOP-led lawsuit that claims that Obamacare's pre-existing conditions protections are illegal. Right. Like, it's literally the opposite of what is true. But then Trump says the mistruth and we repeat it. Like, are we carrying his water? Are we lying for him? I think he is incredibly effective. I think President Trump is incredibly effective at controlling 
the news cycle. And what's interesting to think about for me is like, what should a news organization ideally do? So if the president says something that is definitely not true. Yeah. Then do you not report it? Well, and how do we avoid accelerating these things? You know, I used the word terrorist in describing his comments about Middle Easterners. He didn't use that word. He just said unknown Middle Easterners. But you get those words in your head and all of a sudden you're thinking of other words like terrorist. Right, because he's dog whistling to his base. He's talking. I think that it's the dog whistling to all of us. Yeah, I like that term. I mean, although I guess like if we were in charge of these newsrooms, what would we want our newsroom to ignore? I can't say. It's a good question. And if everyone else is reporting it, it's like, well, you know, why isn't the Sam Sanders Network covering the caravans? <laughs> the SNN. Sam Sanders Network. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Let's get a piece of the 60 million. Yeah. <laughs> Megan, call us. Uh, Stacy, do you have three words? I do. Um, shifting Saudi stories. Say that Ooh. 10 times fast. This is so I've been covering, um, you know, I cover business and economics. I've been yeah. covering Saudi Arabia for a long time because of oil mm-hmm. and just watching how the way that the country and the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman has handled the news about the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi and just how the stories have changed and also how the attitude of the Saudi government has changed. Yeah. Well, the latest is uh, the government and the crown prince have said now that they believe the killing was premeditated. Yes. Which is the furthest they've gone to actually match the story that uh, the authorities have. Right. And apparently they also let uh, Khashoggi's son out of the country. He did, A travel ban had been imposed on him. Um, he's a U.S.-Saudi right. citizen, huh. but he hadn't been allowed to leave Saudi because of his father speaking out against the kingdom. Oh, wow. So he was allowed to go to the U.S. Okay. There was a very awkward... Photo shoot, but that was that was quite a concession yeah. in a lot of ways from from Saudi Arabia. Does this show that Saudi Arabia is feeling pressure and possible financial pressure? There's a talk that countries might invest less or stop investing in this country or buy less from them. Is this really any economic pressure on Saudi Arabia, or is it just a blip? Enormous. I think it's enormous. Really? Um, Why? Because, well, so Saudi Arabia basically. Its whole economy is this one company, Saudi Aramco, which is the oil company. Huh. It's basically bankrolls like thousands of Saudi princes. It, huh. it is the biggest company in the world. It is really? worth, no wow. one even knows. It's bigger than Apple? Oh, yeah. They, 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 no one Say knows the name how, again? Uh, it's uh, Saudi Aramco. Huh. Saudi Aramco. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> no, it's the biggest. And so they were th- going to go, go public and sell shares. And this oh. was MBS's big plan. So they were like, Saudi Aramco is going to go public and sell shares. And no one knew how big this company was. They're like, maybe it's worth, you know, a trillion. I mean, just like huge, yeah, yeah. huge numbers being thrown out. But the problem is, like, if you go public and sell shares, and so, like, all stock exchanges all over the world were competing. The New York mm. Stock Exchange was competing. China yeah. was competing. Everybody wanted a piece of this. This was going to be the biggest. But they lose control, right? But you have to disclose. You have to open up your books. Uh. So Saudi Arabia was trying to figure out, like, well, maybe, like, we'll just take 5% of the company public, which would still be the biggest pub initial public offering wow. in global history. This oh company is goodness. enormous. I had no idea. And wow. So they were like, we'll take 5% of it public or 10% of it public. And the New York Stock Exchange is like, we can't do that. You still want to see your books. <laughs> that you can't, doesn't right. work. And, yeah. and, you know, this is like the bank rolls of all the Saudi really? royal family. And suddenly you just haven't been hearing about it. I mean, last year this was huge news. This was going to be the IPO to end all IPOs, cover story in The Economist, everything. Now crickets. And a lot of companies, I think because of this incident, are like, 
what is happening here? Yeah. I mean, what's interesting here, though, is that, like, everybody knew that there were, like, severe human rights violations in Saudi Arabia before. Public executions. And the... And the the fact that this one incident is sort of like the stand-in for all of the ones. All of a sudden, now everybody's like, "Oh no! Now we have very extreme bad. morals." Yeah. Is a little bit of hypocrisy in oh, the totally. face of a yeah. you know. Well, and we know that like a bunch of U.S. tech companies are benefiting from mm. Saudi money. Mm-hmm. Are they going to oh, yeah. stop taking it? Are they going to send it back? Right. Right. <laughs> All right, on that note, we're going to take a break. Coming up, I will tell you how and why Netflix convinced millions of people across the world to watch a bunch of romantic comedies this summer. Y'all did too, huh? Believe in love. Yeah, yeah. I know. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Lagunitas Brewing Company, which helps nonprofits turn beer into money through fundraising events. Chief Cultural Officer Ron Lindenbush thinks fundraisers are a great place to discover new beer. I've had so many people tell me that the first time they had our beer was at a fundraiser. And you're in this this great place and this great stuff is happening around you. It's It's magic. To learn more, visit Lagunitas.com slash community. Support for NPR and the following message come from Hinge. Hinge is the dating app that's great at one thing, setting you up on great dates. And they're not just saying that. On Hinge, three out of four first dates lead to second dates. They are the number one mobile-first dating app mentioned in the New York Times wedding section. So if you're looking for a BFF, a job, a pen pal, or a hookup, Hinge isn't the place for you. Hinge is exclusively designed to get you out on great dates. Download Hinge in the Apple Store or Google Play. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We do long-form interviews with the people behind the best books, pop culture, journalism, and more, so you can get to know the people whose work you love. You'll find Fresh Air on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with Julia Furlan, podcaster, newsmaker, hip shaker. Oh, You're dancing today. I love Look, it. I had some coffee. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> also here with Stacey Vanek-Smith, host of NPR's The Indicator podcast. Before we get back in the news, I got to ask you both. Um, Halloween weekend is kind of this weekend. The day itself is next Wednesday. What's y'all's favorite Halloween candy? I got to say... Fun size, specifically the little square things, um, Snickers. Oh, yeah. Because it has the perfect little one, like half of a peanut in it at the top. I I love to imagine that there is some job at the Snickers factory where you just make sure each miniature one has a peanut. (laughs) Boop. Oh, (laughs) I'm the peanut placer. Exactly. What's your favorite Halloween candy? I actually also love the fun size um, Reese's Pieces peanut butter cups. Mm, I feel like the ratio of peanut butter to chocolate in the little ones is like perfect. Okay, good. Mm. I was afraid you were gonna we were gonna go into a candy corn debate. Oh no, I was gonna have to send you to space. (laughs) I will. So (laughs) I know I hate candy corn. That's just like you're you're eating wax. I don't even know what happens there. Why? I'm happy we've agreed on something. Candy corns. Why? We're done. Exactly. I bring all of this up because. Um, this online bulk candy seller called The Candy Store, they track candy sales in every state, and they have an annual list of the favorite Halloween candies in every state. <gasps> mm. Yeah. Oh, my God. Tell oh, us, I saw tell this us, map. tell us. Yeah. 
So, Stacy, I know that you are from Idaho. Indeed, I am. And it turns out the best-selling Halloween candy in Idaho, your home state, is candy corn. What? Yes. I demand a recount. Know, there is right? no way know, that's right? true. I think this is a conspiracy from Oregon. <laughs> I saw Julia, this, where are you from? New I'm York? Massachusetts. I'm, okay. Uh, well, I was okay. I grew up in Massachusetts. I I identify as a New Yorker, and in fact, I know both the candies for that. And New it, York is uh, sour, sour patch, patch kids. kids, and so is Massachusetts. I really? Think. Yeah. Basically, you know, they're the I same. love that you know this. That's I looked at the map. Well, I don't know if it was a meme or something, but there was one that had Idaho have uh, Natty Light as the favorite candy. Okay, <laughs> someone is just messing with my states. <laughs> Natty Light. I love it. <laughs> All right. Let's talk now about another thing that I love besides Halloween candy. Uh, movies. Yes. Mm. Specifically romantic comedies. Yeah. Um, I want to run you through a few of the films that I watched over this summer. Uh, there was one movie in which two overworked assistants set their bosses up with Ugh. each other. We did it. We made two miserable people happy. I'm proud of us. There was another movie I watched this summer where a teenage girl's private love letters were mysteriously mailed to all of her crushes. I think it's really cool that you think I have golden specks in my eyes. Oh my God. It's Josh. The letters are out. Then there was this other one where the bride got left at the altar. So then she went on her honeymoon with her estranged father. The two of us got incredibly drunk that night. And I must have blacked out because... Hi, sweetheart. <laughs> that was the voice of Kelsey Grammer. The honeymoon <laughs> so the fun thing about all these movies is that these were all rom-coms on Netflix. You heard clips there from Set It Up to All the Boys I've Loved Before and Like Father. Have y'all watched any of those movies? Two out of three. Okay, which two? I watched um, To All the Boys I Loved Before, of course. So good. And Set It Up. Yes. Lovely. Which I also loved. Lovely. I feel retro about them. I feel yes. I feel like oh, yeah. it, it stokes a particular part of my heart. Same, same. So these movies, along with a bunch of other rom-com releases on Netflix all summer, were part of this big push by Netflix to get subscribers to watch romantic comedies on the streaming service. They even had a name for this big push. They called it their Summer of Love. Nice. Uh, and last week they put the data out, some of the data out, and it turns out that tens of millions of people watched these movies across the world this summer. Some 80 million people. Yeah. So I wanted to know more about this and Netflix and their Summer of Love. So I called up someone who has been covering the Summer of Love very closely. Her name is Gwen Inat. She uh, writes for the Onions AV Club. She's been closely following the Summer of Love. So we talked all about it. Hey, Gwen, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, Thank you for your time. Oh, my gosh. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited. Yeah. I have been kind of geeking out for (laughs) several days now upon discovering that without my knowledge, Netflix quietly made me fall in love with rom-coms this summer. (laughs) I know. You didn't even know. Um, They called it their Summer of Love. What exactly is it? Uh, Yeah, The Summer of Love was like a menu of rom-com movies that Netflix kind of unfurled at the beginning of the summer uh, that, as it turns out, as Netflix reported recently for their third quarter report, 80 million viewers watched. And it's not even number of views, that's viewers. So if you're a dork like me and you watched them like four or five times a piece, you you can even multiply that number. 80 million people watching these (laughs) rom-coms. My big question and first question about all of this is like, what let Netflix know or think 
that rom-coms would work for them. You know, we've seen movie studios and, like, the box office not really take to rom-coms for many years now. It's hard to find them in theaters. So knowing that trend line, what made Netflix say, well, this might work for us? I think they just spied a completely underserved market. You know, Hmm. if you look at the summer box office, the top 10 movies are all sequels and genre yeah. and, and comic book or, craziness. Or offshoots. Yeah, you know, it's all like Mission Impossible, Infinity War. So if you want to see things blown up at the multiplex, you know, you're living in the golden era. But if you want like just to have a nice love story at the movies, except for Crazy Rich Asians this summer, you were kind of out of luck. So for Netflix, it's kind of a combination of factors that they did. They're not only are churning out these rom-coms, they're also tagging Uh, women creative forces, women writers, women directors, some of them, Mm. you know, this is the first movie they directed or they've directed like TV episodes before. They're adapting YA novels. They're finding creative forces that really have been underused and it's worked out really well for them. Yeah. Why have the big movie studios that put movies in theaters, why have they left the rom-coms writ large? I think they're... uh, they're not the safe bet that they once were. Like if you're gonna mm. you're gonna put like bazillion dollars into Infinity War, but you're gonna get more bazillion dollars back. Yeah. And with rom coms, there was a, a golden era, you know, when Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts, you could just basically put Hugh Grant with anybody, like, let's put with Sandra Bullock next. Why not? Mm-hmm. But then you would have something like Reese Witherspoon and Vince Vaughn in Four Christmases and it tanked. Yeah. And these are superstars, so you're like paying them a lot of money and then you're not getting your money back. And it's also for the moviegoer, you know, if I'm going to get a sitter and talk my husband into going to see a movie that's, you know, romance-themed, like it's going to have to be a kind of special event where for Netflix, you know, it's free. I'm at home. There's really no risk for me to like watch set it up. And if I don't like it, I'm just going to go watch Gilmore Girls reruns again. Like (laughs) it's not a big deal. But then you end up liking set it up. And like, if you're like me, I've watched it three times and then Netflix is going to send me more possibilities for that rom-com genre. And I think that's how it all exploded. Yeah. You know, I think the thing with the rom-com It's perfect for me, a single-ish person, to watch at home alone because the last thing I want to do is spend $20 and see a lovely couple end up together forever on screen, and then I got to go home alone. (laughs) Oh, yeah. If you can do that with a Ben & Jerry's and (laughs) a frozen pizza, I mean, that's that's a Thursday night. You got that going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, Should we expect movie studios, big movie studios that are putting movies in theaters to react to this Netflix news and say, oh, we should start making rom-coms again? Like, does Netflix's Summer of Love and its success lead to more rom-coms in actual movie theaters? Um, that's an interesting question. I I do wonder about that because, I mean, Crazy Rotations did so well because we just want, a you know, a lovely movie like that to see in the theater. And in the the story that I wrote, another thing that was really prevalent, we had a ton of commenters. And because the question is like, well, why did 80 million people watch this? Like, what is the big question? Um, And other than like markets or whatever, people are just like, we're depressed. We're, (laughs) you know, we're we're stressed out. We want escapism. We want, you know, we want like just an easy, fun movie. Maybe we don't even want to see things blown up anymore. I know that's hard to even like wrap your head around. (laughs) But we know like an actual romance you know, like my husband and I had a, a drag out fight last night over like whether the kitchen rug was too slippery and, you know, and like 
an effective, like, decorative, you know, motif for our kitchen or was it a health hazard? You know, so we know that day-to-day romance is not all that magical. But to see a movie, like, to see the two adorable leads of set it up at the end and knowing that they're going to, like, walk out in the sunset together, like, that's two hours that I can just, like chill, you know, maybe with some box wine, maybe with my kids. (laughs) Yeah. It's a great, effective method. I love it. Well, I also kind of feel like the one thing I'm realizing with the rise of streaming is that our capacity to watch stuff is basically Mm -hmm. endless. We'll watch everything and watch it again and again and again. (laughs) But isn't that like part of it? I don't, but it's like a chicken and the egg thing. Like was, did our capacity have to stretch out because there was so much stuff because you know remember like back in the in the days when we like just had like cable and that seemed like a lot like oh 30 channels i can't watch all this and now it's like (laughs) you know our dvrs are broken because they're overflowing and i'm you know five episodes behind on riverdale already and the season just started like there's (laughs) there's there's got to be a limit somewhere the struggle is real the struggle is real it's true you got to watch it all gwen thank you so much thanks again for having me so many thanks to Gwen. Um, I do find this whole storyline really incredible because so much of the energy of movies has just moved away from movie theaters. Right. For I mean, years yeah. now, fewer people have been going to movie theaters. I will say that one thing about these romantic comedies that really stands out is that, like, if you watch the ones from the 90s, they're so sexist they and homophobic and, yeah. and, like, racist. and Although these... some kind of wonderful, I will stand by. <laughs> <laughs> but these ones now, they are, they're, they have a new voice and it feels necessary. Totally, totally. I'm going to need Netflix next summer to have uh, a summer of buddy cop films. Oh, oh nice. Really what happened to, what the, happened buddy to the buddy cop film? Lesson. There's like the grizzled veteran yeah. who's like has to be yes. paired up with like the mm. well-meaning, yeah. but. I need it. Yeah. yeah. Brianna and Mindy Kaling <laughs> yes. as buddy cop. Oh, yes. Mm. On that mm-hmm. note, oh, Netflix, yeah. call us. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've got a lot of we've This is the third job we've tried to get. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's time for a break. When we come back, we're going to hit y'all one more time with my favorite game. Who said that? The following message comes from our sponsor, Capital One. The CreditWise app from Capital One recently released three new features, including a social security number tracker to help users quickly detect fraud for free. Here's head of CreditWise, Joe Whitchurch. While identity fraud is intimidating and can sound really complex, a little bit of effort can go a long way in helping you understand if you've been a victim of identity fraud. CreditWise is free for everyone, whether you're a Capital One customer or not. You can find CreditWise in your app or Play Store now. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Babbel, a language program that quickly teaches real-life conversations in a new language. Choose from Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Babbel's 10 to 15-minute lessons use interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology to get you speaking your new language correctly and confidently. Try Babbel for free by downloading the app or going to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot Dr. Larry Nassar abused his patients for decades. I do remember telling the nurse, what if everyone thinks I'm lying? Believed, a new podcast from Michigan Radio and NPR, looks at how a team of women put one of the worst serial sexual abusers behind bars. 
You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I am Sam Sanders here with two guests that are strong and independent and can ID themselves. Tell folks who you are. I'm Julia Furlan, podcaster, journalist, podcast maker, host person. Wow, doing great here. Love it, love it. I'm Stacey Vanek-Smith. I'm the host of NPR's The Indicator from Planet Money. Da-da-da. That's me Okay, we could do this all day. Yes, we could. All day. (laughs) Anyways, uh, it's time for my favorite game, Who Said That? Who said that? You know how it goes. It's really simple. I share a quote from the week. You guys have to guess who said that or at least get the story I'm talking about. The winner, of course, gets absolutely nothing. I will say um, the theme of this week's questions deal with uh, race in a kind of hilarious way. Okay, bring it on. Bring it on. First quote is... Our experienced staff have been living while black in America their entire lives. Who said that? Al Roker? Was that? No. No. Was, no? It was a funny video that was released oh. this week. Let's play the actual cut. You might know this. That would be voice. great. Okay. okay. Our experienced staff have been living while black in America their entire lives. That's an actress. She was in, way back in the day, Reno 911. Oh, I n- never watched Reno 911. Now I'm, I'm regretting like, it. I'm going to tell you what her name rhymes with. Oh, God. Oh, this is going to get this worse get because it. then if we don't know, it's like. <laughs> Fleecy Flash. Niecy Nash. Yes. <laughs> Yay! Niecy wow, Nash. That's a low bar. So, Niecy Nash, uh, currently star of the TNT show Claws, which I love, uh, she did oh. a parody infomercial for the New York Times opinion section this week uh, for a hotline called 1-844-WHITE-FEAR. Oh, right. Oh, Oh, my God. I saw that. It was like it was for people to call this hotline instead of calling the cops cops on black people. people. (laughs) Call it when black people are having a barbecue, taking a nap in a rec room, mowing the lawn, waiting for a friend at a coffee shop. Golfing, shopping, enjoying a vacation. Oh, the world is dark, man. That's amazing. <laughs> That's but amazing. Like she, and it turns out, apparently, the actual phone number they give, it works. When you call it, you get Really? If you are indeed white and feeling scared about a black or brown person in your proximity, press 1. <laughs> if you're near a black or brown person waiting for a friend at a coffee shop, press 3. <laughs> New York Times is out here coming for blood. Wow. I'm impressed. Like, yeah. that's, like, funny and hard to, like, yeah. interesting. Like, that's, it's a, that's a really amazing. good idea that I feel needs more. I mean, I, I give it a round of applause. That's a really yeah, good. Yeah, me really too. Good. I really want this to become the fake number that women give out at the club. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really? Yes. white fear. Yeah. But, like, don't spell the letters. <laughs> just, like, give the number. Just give the number. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway. Ladies, if you're listening, you know what to do. <laughs> All right, you got that one, Julia. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll help you. Yeah. It's fine. It's like it's like we're playing limbo, and you just like pulled the bar over your head so that I could walk directly <laughs> under it. I'm but thank help. you. I'm here to help. Thanks. Next quote. Ready? I think it's better to be a white male. When you have a white male making the arguments, they carry more weight. Should they carry more weight? Absolutely not. But oh. do they? Yes. Who said that? <laughs> Someone who might run for president in 2020, he said this. Oh, it was it Michael Avenatti? Yeah. So Michael Avenatti, celebrity oh, attorney God. for people like Stormy Daniels. This is the woman who alleged that she had an affair with President Trump and got paid to be quiet about it. 
her lawyer, Michael Avenatti, in an interview this week with Time, said he's probably going to or maybe going to run for president in 2020. And he said it's only right that a white guy runs because he thinks it better really? be a white male. I, did, I thought that was maybe a fake quote. No, it's no, real. It's real. No. I also feel like every week or so now, Michael Avenatti is doing something stupid. That's true. Yeah. And I'm just like, who keeps letting this man out of the house? I know. Final quote. Ready? Mm. This one's very strange. Instead of going to a grave, I go to Disney World. Okay. Okay. Hang on. No, you just tell gonna... me what this You've is about. You've already gotten okay. two out of three. I feel bad. Come there on, Stacey. Really this is yours. Hang there on. There was a really wacky story this week about a certain kind of thing that people leave at Disney World. Oh, oh. I don't know. Is it like biological? It is biological. <laughs> formally biological. Uh, ashes. ashes? Oh, Ashes yes. at Disneyland. Oh, wait. Disney World. Oh, wait. I did see this story. <laughs> and oh. you forgot about it? Well, <laughs> there's a lot happening in the world right now. I don't know. So a uh, friend of the show, Eric Schwartzel, who writes for The Wall Street Journal, he had this story this week all about how diehard Disney fans or children of diehard Disney fans are leaving their loved ones' ashes in Disney World. Oh, God. Wow. So that quote actually was from Kim Pesolano DeBarth. She was talking to Eric Schwartzel for this story. And um, she left her dead mother's ashes in the water in the small world ride apparently people smuggle in the ashes in ziploc bags or pill bottles they leave them in flower beds they leave them in places like the moat under the dumbo ride so this is like a thing it's a, a big thing. thing it's a big thing and it's gotten so bad that disney employees actually have a term for when they have to take care of the ashes they call it a hepa cleanup like the HEPA filter in your vacuum. Oh, wow. Uh, and apparently the most popular spot for the ashes is the Haunted Mansion. Haunted why? Mansion? Well, really? maybe it's like a it's like a ghost connection thing. But why the Haunted Mansion? Was there any explanation? That's surprising to me because that's like the least sentimental. Like small world I can get. Like maybe you have a nice memory with your kid or your family. Yeah. But the Haunted Mansion? Yeah. Leave mine at, at like a Waffle House. <laughs> that's oh. where I always live my best life. I mean... Disney matters to people and it brings yeah. people like the, it, it in many ways is like the brightest moment that anyone can imagine in their whole life. I can of course it's a no brainer, but what are they going to do? They're going to have a ride where it's like this is the ashes ride where like yeah, this is the <laughs> Pirates ashes of the place. Caribbean has never been so real. Oh, like oh, God. It's, it's very American. Right? I'm going to leave my ashes yeah. in. Oh, gonna yeah. leave my ashes? I'm going to leave my ashes in. <laughs> A J. Crew Men's Shop. A <laughs> J. Crew nice. Men's Shop. Wow. <laughs> Listeners, you don't know which one it's going to be. I'm going to give my ashes to the Park Slope Food Co op. <laughs> Sorry, guys. They will have so many meetings about that. I know. <laughs> I know. Many thanks to our winner this week, Julia Furlong. Oh. To our first runner up, Stacey Vanek Smith. <laughs> first runner up. Uh, That's yeah. well put, Sam. Thank you. All right, now it's time to end the show as we do every week. We ask our listeners to share with us the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. Brent, hit the tape. Hi, Sam. Ray Tucker here from Somerset, Kentucky. The best thing that happened to me this week is I got my first zero kilowatt hour electric bill. Solar may be old hat in California. But here in Cole Counties of Kentucky, it is something to crow about. Now I am harvesting sunshine. Thanks for the show. Hi, Sam. This is Linnea from Oslo, Norway. My best thing this week was finally being able to eat something other than dry toast after six weeks of really bad morning sickness. 
Hi Sam, this is Richard from Whittier, California. And the best thing that happened to me this week is that I found out I'm going to be dad to a baby boy. My baby finally took a bottle, which means when I go back to work, I don't have to worry about her being hungry all day. My baby boy finally took his first steps for my mom, who had just gotten out of the hospital. Hi Sam, this is Carmel from Vancouver, Washington. The best thing that happened to me this week was celebrating my grandmother's 94th birthday with her. The best thing that happened to me this week is I attended a taping of The Ellen Show along with my sister and two of my BFFs. The best thing that happened to me this week is my husband took me to Dallas, Texas to meet up with some friends from grad school to take them to the Great State Fair of Texas for the first time. Hi Sam, this is Dave from Reading, PA, and the best thing that happened to me this week is celebrating my 10-year anniversary with my beautiful wife. By the time this airs, the babysitters, my in-laws, will have arrived and will be on our way to New York City, my wife's happy place. Hi Sam, this is Stephanie from Las Vegas. The best part of my week just happened. After 205 days deployed to Afghanistan, I came home to my husband and my pit bull on my Pitbull's birthday. Very excited to be home. Thanks for keeping me updated while I was away. Bye. Thanks, Sam. I love the work that you do. Have a great weekend. Take care. I love it. I I gotta say, I need photos from that Texas State Fair. I've been to that State Fair. It is epic. Send me fried food photos. And uh, there was a Pitbull shout-out in The Best Things. I want to send a picture of that dog. I know, I know. Many thanks to all the voices you heard there. Ray, Linnea, Richard, Kate, Tara, Carmel, Natalia, Michelle, David, and Stephanie. Uh, we listen to all of these that come in, and we always want them every week. So send me the best part of your week at any point throughout any week, uh, anytime. To Sam Sanders at NPR.org. Sam Sanders at NPR.org. Thanks to uh, two of the best parts of my week, my guests, Stacey Vanek Smith of NPR's The Indicator, Julia Furlan, podcaster extraordinaire. I love it. <laughs> you're good. Sam, you're the best. Y'all are the best. Let's take it out on one of the best songs of all time, oh. Miss Britney Spears singing Call Me Baby one more time. <laughs> Um, this week, the show was produced by Brent Bachman, Anjali Sastry, and Alex McCall. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming here at NPR, Anya Grundman. Listeners, refresh your feeds Tuesday morning for some more music. I'll be talking with Bruce Talamon. He's a photographer to the stars. Um, but he joined us to talk about his new book of photographs. In the 70s and early 80s, he took photos of just about every black singer, songwriter, musician of note. Earth, Wind & Fire, Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, Al Green, Diana Ross, the Jackson, Shaka Khan. He has pictures of all these folks and stories about all of them. He talks me through the music, the photos, and their lives. It's a beautiful thing with a lot of songs. Check for that on Tuesday. Until next time, thanks for listening. We're going to end it at the perfect spot. This is the part where the my favorite part comes in. <laughs> the arms are up in the air. The hips are moving. You guys are great. Just keep singing. <laughs>